0: What I'd like to do is transition into another question. There are possibly some of you out there who have more things that you'd like to add to this, but you're not comfortable speaking to the mic or it occurs to you later. So we will leave the board up here with a marker so when we're done, you can add more statements to what you heard as statements were entered into the record on Wednesday or Monday. The second question, um, and for this, I'd actually like to invite Robert to um, lead us with the, the next question. Actually, I'm going to lead with the next question by responding to
1: the first question a little bit. As somebody who works and has worked for a very long time in public health related to the epidemic, um, and at the same time has had a very strong interest in what art practice can potentially contribute, um, the experience on Monday night was was quite, I think, startling in a number of ways. And I want to talk a little bit about the experience. I, I was actually positioned as a facilitator at one of the tables and I've been a facilitator at a number of these performances. Um, so actually I'd had an exercise in that experience but being one of seven facilitators at seven tables simultaneously was not something I had experienced before. But being bound to the table meant that um, you know, I had a very fixed location from which I was required to listen in a certain way, and there were two levels at which I was listening. I I was having, this afternoon, I was having um, a lunch with a physician from Australia, his name is Alex Wodak. Um, He delivered a plenary address yesterday morning in the International AIDS Conference Uh, that was the very first time that harm reduction has actually been positioned as a topic for a plenary session. And Alex Wodak has been a very active harm reduction activist and practitioner for about 20 years. And in the course of the conversation, um, he said to me, you know, what has happened to the arts? Where are they in, in this process? You know, if we list the various sort of social institutions that have signed on and have contributed in some way to the epidemic... Where, where is the arts? I mean, this is a hugely significant constituency, but it, it, from my point of view, says Alex, it seems to be extraordinarily absent, right? So I then went into a discussion or a description of the experience of Monday night, and I actually had come to my table a number of people I know very well and have worked very closely with, including a activist physician from New York City, um, and an anthropologist, and a young, uh, an anthropologist also from New York City that I work with very closely in South Africa, and also a young Dutch researcher who's interested in sexual rights issues, and then Walt came to the table. And actually, over the course of that conversation, which I could listen to very carefully, a very particular analysis developed which was one of sort of the 20 years of the epidemic, where you begin with this experience that the epidemic is something that's happening within a particular context. And then over those 20 years, in a more accelerated form for some who are very directly impacted and at a a less rapid pace for others, there is the realization that this is, the epidemic is about fundamental social processes at the, the sort of concluding sort of thrust of Walt's statement as I remember it was that actually this is about capitalism. This is actually another realization or revelation of the consequences of the capitalist system in the way in which it concentrates inequalities, it concentrates power, it concentrates resources, and it systematically disempowers um, and it systematically disenables people. So that was there was this very, very astute, well-rehearsed and beautifully argued sort of analysis that built up over the course of these statements at that table that suggested one form of engagement and action that the public health ear was able to sort of pick up on. And I was sort of saying, yeah, you know, I know some of the work that we've been doing. And then there was both the visual as well as the auditory experience of the raw of the piece itself. And a number of responses that I had to that. One was the extraordinary beauty of disaster in a certain way. The fact that there is, in the practice of art making, a kind of extraordinary fascination with catastrophe. And that this, this visual process of all of these people, as I looked across these seven tables from the end of the room, many of them people I know very well, very close friends, intellectual inspiration to me, and seeing them sort of urgently addressing this crisis and realizing how out of control it is as well, and at the same time experiencing that as gorgeous, as ex- incredibly beautiful in some way was a was a tension for me, was a paradox. But the the question for me was, you know, what then did the in a way the aesthetics suggest as action? Both in, and this is the question. What do those of us and many of the facilitators here are actually involved, as you've heard, in on the day-to-day basis? in delivering services, in working in communities that are affected, with individuals who are affected in multiple institutions, whether they're community-based organizations, or in clinic settings, or in community-based groups that are advocating and activating for for the rights of particular groups in some way. What gets drawn from that aesthetic event and its terms that actually shape the possibilities of of engagement? So do you go back and do your work differently? on the basis of what you experienced? That's the one question. So what does this bring into the action of responding on the day-to-day basis to the issues that you confront and face? Of course I want to know, what specifically for you, but for, for anybody, and you know, it's a question I, I ask myself. And the second one is, do we have a better sense now of how we might respond to Alex Wodak's question of where are the art institutions, Where are art movements? Where is the art art practice in relating to the epidemic? What kinds of action does this process of silent listen suggest potentially for reclaiming the museum, at least, as a democratic space, as a space for the exploration and expression of citizenship in some form? So those are the questions they're tiny they're insignificant <laughs> modest questions
2: it's Rick again <laughs> for me when you were talking about action in order to have any kind of action on this disease everyone is going to have to stop listening to all the mumbo jumbo and get right down to the issues table by table, by speaker, by speaker, by individual, by individual. That's what it's going to take to pull all of this together and make it uniform, I believe.
3: I'm sorry, your name again? Robert. Um, Robert, I found it very interesting that you asked the question, where is the art in terms of the idea of creating a democratic space or a culture? And the first thing I thought when you asked that question was another question, how many people are aware how relevant art is, you know, that space is. And although I feel that Rick's response is absolutely true, there's so much value in that, it really didn't address that. And I think that's really what's at stake here. I believe from having had experiences of my own, of similar, you know, um, spaces where, music has been used to create an, a happening of sorts, because this is what I understand what happened this past week to be, that people have that understanding of that on a real primordial or like organic, like right-in-the-gut feeling. But when it comes to talking about it, I think it brings up a lot more questions. Than it does to like what can I say? Where's the art in this? <laughs> and I mean, I haven't. I don't know if that's going to be relevant to this project, but that's just what I had to say.
4: Um, what I was thinking uh, is maybe sort of in that way. It's it's coming back to my first. The first thing I said. The first answer I had to the first question. <laughs> uh, I think uh, analyzing and all that stuff is really good. But uh, I think at some point, we analyze and analyze and analyze and don't stop to just really listen and feel. And uh, I like the the, the part where he said uh, to individuals or to people that uh, are really affected by... uh, Here we're talking about HIV AIDS, but uh, it can be... There's a lot of other issues in the world which we analyze, overanalyze without really listening to the people that are most affected by, so.
5: Well, this is Shanad again. Um, Just to answer the question about the arts, um, I'm a lover of the arts myself. Um, All kinds of art from hip-hop music to rap to art um, paintings, you know, pretty much anything that is a description of someone's feelings and how they're feeling inside. And it's kind of ironic that Rick asked the question about where's the arts, because um, in Pittsburgh we had, uh, for National HIV Testing Day, we had a um, well community group in Pittsburgh had a uh, call out for young artists, as far as uh, poets or rappers, to come and and get studio time in order to to make a CD, then tell them what the CD was for, and they got over 400 responses. for this uh, studio time and to be able to rap and have their voices out there and have their names out there. And then when the individual told them that you'll be rapping about AIDS, um, they got four out of 400. So, you know, but at the same time, it's kind of ironic because the people who stepped back and said, no, I don't want to rap about that, said, well, I do admire people who are willing to rap about that. So the the arts, I think there's a fear because art is such a internal thing and you res- express your own self so much in your work that people are going to feel like it's a reflection of you, that AIDS is you or somehow you've been affected by AIDS and being that there's such a stigma with AIDS still, they may not want to have that association. So. Where are the arts? I think that the arts are cowering behind, I don't know, just cowering in the corner. I, I don't know.
6: Um, hi, my name's Andrew Patterson. I'm an artist based in Toronto. I think, well, you know, the arts is such a huge field. I think it's very interesting, particularly the Ultra Red, at, at the onset of this presentation and in other presentations have identified twin streams of AIDS, direct activism, you know, their involvement with ACT UP and practices around conceptual art, and they do not see a huge contradiction in those twin departure points because my observation over the years is that many people would that and have, that many artists who have working with a very direct activist agenda sometimes will use fairly populist and accessible formulas, and they do become formulas, and have, in, in many cases, a suspicion of abstraction. And there have been suspicions of abstraction throughout the art world. I mean, many queer artists have quite rightly been offended by and homophobia of many of the vintage abstractionists and their own work was pie in the face to a lot of those abstractionists. But also I think the, the repetition, and here in, in your presentations, I hear a huge tension between the individual and the collective, between anarchic individual, fuck bureaucracy, let's go. You know, let's let's get a feeling out there and then a simultaneous fascination and exhaustion with repetitive structures. Also that many artists have, the obvious that many of the artists who were doing really great work around AIDS are, are just frankly no longer here to do it or they themselves started to see repeated images becoming more and more abstract and maybe less identifiable and in some ways maybe less user friendly. But I think what AlterRed's doing is very reflective of a tension between individual need for self-empowerment and the quagmire of, and the repetitive languages of bureaucracy and also the tensions between emotion and verbal language, where verbal language due to its own repetition becomes emotionally inadequate and some, it's a cliche that sometimes music can go places where verbal language can't.
1: Thank you.
7: Jessica, here again. Shannad, I love that story of yours because it's one of the only times I've heard of an instance when a cultural institution was pushing for representation of a political issue and there were fewer artists than urgency in the institution. And so I guess in terms of your second question, I can't speak to the first one because I don't, I don't work with an aid service organization. But in terms of the second, I think it's really important to, to separate the ways in which artists as art are present in and around the crisis that is HIV-AIDS, globally and locally, and the ways in which cultural institutions represent that set of problems in all of the ways that they manifest. And this is a tension that that I experience a lot, not only in relation to HIV-AIDS, but with most forms of socially and politically engaged art practice. And the tension that Jana spoke to um, before about the the relations between cultural institutions and a variety of practices, including activism, how these ways of expressing all kinds of things through every medium and discipline in the arts are so often not reflected in the institutions that that are that attempt or claim at many levels to represent contemporary culture, contemporary action, the concerns of the world in which we live currently. And so I think there are a lot of artists who don't feel that they have access to the institutions of culture whereby their work might become more visible or circulated. And very often it's because that is the case, because those institutions are not very interested in in supporting as part of um, a larger, um, view of cultural practice in the world that is not specifically issue-tied based work that, that is based around a particular issue that unfortunately seems to be one of the last bastions of real recognition within cultural institutions despite the fact that in the history of art conceptualism was really meant as a way to incorporate the, the concerns of the day-to-day social political economic realities of the world into art practice
1: I just want to comment very briefly on a, on a kind of mirroring that I see as, you know, as somebody who's based in a university, and it's a university that engages in a, a, a department that does social science research. This sort of process of repetition and a point of exhaustion, of exhausting the actual sort of terms of analysis, um, a, a kind of systematic process of failure, I think is very much a part of that experience as well. There is, within social science research, which, of course, has its own aesthetics, its own conditions and properties, at least from my perspective, a persistent sort of refinement of the basic conditions of analysis, whether it be a behavioral analysis of what drives the epidemic. So it's sexual behavior. And then you will see this, and you could just if you look at the literature, you'll see an increasing fragmentation or refinement of that issue to the point where it becomes repeated so many times that it it sort of loses any point of significance. And then, you know, something has to arise out of that. And in a certain sense, I've, I've watched a kind of movement in social science research go from this focus on behavior to now a focus on structure and a focus on social inequality. And I'm beginning to see that analysis reaching a point of exhaustion as well. And it does mirror or echo very strongly what I've actually experienced happening, particularly in the sort of northern countries with the epidemic and artists' relationships to it. It's a very different experience, for example, in South Africa when I work there, and the way in which artists are actually engaged and producing extraordinary amounts of work that are very visible, very articulate at this particular point in the epidemic. But it, too, is reaching, I think... a cycle of of failure in a certain way.
8: Hi, I'm Peter, I'm a freelance choreographer. I don't agree that the arts or artists aren't responding to this epidemic. Several weeks ago I participated um, with an organization called Dancers Responding to AIDS, which is based in New York City. And they had a festival on Fire Island, which was a two-day event with three performances, which raised a quarter of a million dollars received a full page coverage in the New York Times and had works contributed by 12 different companies and choreographers, nine of which were world premieres created specifically for this event. And it was the the possibility to create new work that got people like Merce Cunningham involved, the biggest names in dance today that allowed me as a a ballet choreographer to work with the Martha Graham Dance Company that provided possibilities for people to work outside of their normal ways of work for a high profile event that benefited the community. All the money raised by this event went back into services to help artists without medical coverage or housing. And so it was a very positive event in terms of fundraising that served the community that was creating the work.
0: That's very exciting to hear and um, something that I always sort of come back to is the discussions that that many of us participated in many years ago um, and trying to figure out to what extent those discussions of 15 and 20 years ago are useful today. It sort of happened to us when we were in India and we heard so many of the artists talking about work that they were producing that was about humanizing the disease. You've heard this, you know, we we need to put a face to AIDS because then people will care. If they just saw so-and-so's face then they will have this wellspring of response and they will do something. And there was a lot of work that was done in the 80s um, by folks who who were looking at this work um, that was attempting to, you know, if people just saw the level of suffering, they will give. They will do something. Governments will do something. And and then there was the issue of artists, you know, raising funds. And in the early part of the epidemic, in the early 80s, this was the main thing that the arts were called upon to do. And, For Ultra Red, I'll I'll tell you just a a tiny little story, and you tell me to shut up because I have hard times with tiny little stories. They turn into big stories. Um, When we first started out Ultra Red, there were two of us, myself and one other guy, and we were working in the Needle Exchange in Hollywood. Um, The Needle Exchange in Hollywood was sort of started by a bunch of artists who were in ACT UP Los Angeles. And uh, the the main core of this, this group of artists... Um, were visual artists. So they were doing sculpture, they were doing painting, they were doing installation work, right? Video work, photography, and then there were a few who were doing performance work. So they very much saw the needle exchange as not something that they did on the side in addition to their art, it was their art. So, you know, the conditions for that are very specific because you're talking about you're providing a service for someone, a life-saving service of a syringe, That's illegal. So it was very sort of, you know, it was about the conditions of that. So I was doing a conceptual art piece that was about collecting syringes from this time to this time and putting them in a container and putting that container in an art gallery to suggest the high level of need for needle exchange. Right, And folks saw that as not only a direct political action that they could be arrested for but also they saw it as a part of their conceptual work and then they you know, that, that whole range of experiences. So here I was um, with my original partner Marco and we're musicians. We're sound artists. And you know you got to love musicians, but it's so hard because with musicians, you know, you have a love of sounds, right? And oftentimes your love for sounds, your love of sound of a train, your love of a sound of a violin, your love of a sound doesn't have a kind of signifying content that it's easy to say, well, this sound means silence equals death. What sounds mean silence equals... Right, so it's very, very difficult for many of us. So for many musicians, and for many musicians, I think consistently, the role of musicians has been to raise money. So you have a benefit. You have a big concert and you raise money. And you know the early writings of, of, of folks like Crimp and others, you know, they looked at these models of AIDS intervention. They looked at the raising of the money and the putting the face to AIDS and they said well there's got to be a there's a third model for what arts can do cuz these things are necessary we have to raise funds for organizations this is this needs to be done we have to somehow confront issues of stigma this work needs to be done but then there's there's a third thing that the arts can do and there was you know all this and that is developing an analysis of cultural critique how do the representations that exist in our culture, how does the language by which we talk about AIDS in our culture, how do these things actually perpetuate and sustain the crisis? Right? So immediately we flash to all those Grand Fury posters, right? where you had images and you had text that said, I am not a patient, I am not a victim, I am not a client, I am not a consumer, I am a person living with AIDS. Now, we've digested this, we have absorbed this into our being, but at that particular moment, that was incredibly important in analyzing not only how the disease was being experienced, but how it was being represented in the media. And so the kinds of work that was being done by artists was seen as a direct intervention into how representations were actually producing the crisis. Now, for sound artists, this is where our group and where me, my own sort of overwhelming desires is. Is how can sound and the work that I produce, sure I can raise money, I can have benefits, that's great, that's really important. But I'm, as an activist, I want to know how what I work can actually end the AIDS crisis through direct intervention. If that direct intervention puts me in the place of being arrested, then so be it. Then I will be careful to have a collective action. I will have support. I will make sure that there's bail bonds if there needs to be, right? So how can the, the work that I do actually intervene upon the institutions, the art institutions, the government institutions, and so forth? And I say that not to sort in any way disqualify all the other work that is being done in the projects that you discussed. And for many people, this is an entry point into the actual issue itself, the first time they've ever done anything around HIV and AIDS. But then the question is, how does your art practice, your art practice, intervene upon AIDS? How does it do that? How does it actually critique the instruments of representation and how does it actually resist the instruments of in- in- representation and signification?
9: In terms of your question about uh, as a result of these performances, am I going to do anything different, for example? Or do I see things happening? Well, one thing that I would like to try to figure out how to do is to, do, is to continue and ex- elaborate and extend the process where people of much different experiences share their stories. That was happening the other night, and that happens in this conference. I mean, there's a, there's a, a host of practical problems and philosophical and political problems in doing that. It costs enormous amounts of money to bring people to Toronto. Many people say, is it ethically supportable? How are more economical ways of connecting people to people across vastly different cultures and income levels and languages possible? But yet, there's an enormous power in that, obviously and exactly what will come of it, I don't know. But I know that the process would be worth doing. And the other thing is, uh, and I said this sort of same thing at LACE, the the L.A. Contemporary Exhibition, where there was a discussion a few months ago (laughs) with Ultra Red and some other people. I'm a non-artist activist. I I admire art, but I don't know anything about it. And uh, I don't know how to engage the world of art, but would like to. And some of it is purely instrumentational or, you know, utilitarian, that I, I would like to see artists engage in combating stigma. The stigma like that Sherrod, Sherrod was talking about, about how the 400 to 4, or the stigma that exists in, in Mexico that Pedro talks about, it, and that, you know, where where people cannot acknowledge that they like to have sex with, me, with people of the same gender, and that that's a profound barrier to... All kinds of things, from direct prevention to accessing services to changing behavior to mobilizing a society to overcoming the lack of political will to combat it in a given country. How do we deal with the stigma against you know, people that want to have sex or against sex workers, or against transgender? I mean, there's all kinds of stigma that just exists, exists. So that seems like one kind of a thing. Another kind of a thing is what kind of a language or representation or evocation of arts could help us transcend the the limited patterns with which we started thinking about it or just the public health paradigm the, the the different, you were talking about in different ways how things kind of run their course, well as that begins to happen how can we leap, transcend morph uh, synergize to the next stage and it seems like y'all people in the arts world have a lot of stuff to teach people and me, like and I'm also a black box epidemiologist by profession so I, I'm trained to think and you know kind of prosaic causal efficacious <laughs> ways, but would like to have that more opened up.
10: Yeah, me, uh, i going to speak not as someone who knows a lot of art. I'm, I'm also an AIDS activist and I'm a person living with HIV AIDS. I'm sorry I, I got late because I had a lot of activism <laughs> to do today. It's the second time that I was seeing uh, the work done by Ultra-Red because I I did participate in what they did in Montreal earlier this year. And uh, what I want to say is that what I felt on Monday night is that that was really something that could really help the people living with AIDS who are, I'm not talking about the AIDS crisis, I'm talking about the personal crisis that each of us is going through. And uh, as an activist, I was finding that what you have developed can even take other forms and allow people living with HIV AIDS to be part of the record. Because somewhere this is, uh, there are so much lost memory of what we have all been through. And that type of performance, I think, could be such a powerful tool. So this is what I want to say. And I don't know anything about art, but I like sound. I like visual. And uh, what I saw and what I heard on Monday was truly moving and... uh, it's something that has to continue. It's activism.
4: I just wanted to add that uh, one thing that's def- definitely going to change in the way I work is uh, remembering that I not only have allies in other community organizations, or I can have allies in people such as artists, <laughs> which I didn't really think about before, and uh, probably uh, a lot of other people. That so I'm think I'll, I'll be more open to that and I think uh, that can definitely make a difference.
11: I just wanted to encourage people to continue to go to the streets. I think that the voices we heard all came from outside the gallery, they came to sit here and to be part of the exhibit and obviously so much work went into putting on this particular exhibit but I still think that uh, people's reality lies everywhere else in the world and mostly not in galleries or mostly not specifically only in galleries. So I was very moved by Daunt's uh, reflection on some of the earlier inspiration. I know all of us have that, so there's, you know, I'm not trying to say anybody's better than anybody else. But to look toward your next uh, project, I really encourage you to go directly into the streets. I found from Monday in particular, uh, as distinct from Wednesday, Monday's International, had a lot of common space. Uh, that was beside the tables, obviously interacting, there was amplification from the tables, etc. But there was a lot of free area where people who were participants, perhaps, by sitting down at the table, but in any case, observers, uh, participant observers, were able to speak with one another and talk about how they were moved, what they were thinking of saying, what they would say, uh, what they did say. You know, it, it was an improvised action by the people there. The thing that I noticed is, of course, we're still bound by being in an art gallery and that's fine I accept that about this exhibit I love it you know I, I made some art for you folks it has uh, an engraving that I did on some concrete uh, my, my name is Red as well <laughs> I've been called ultra many things but <laughs> but this is an engraving that says Red Rev and it's on one of the streets that uh, had a lot of gentrification going on in Toronto recently and uh, I just want to give you some local history Grace Jones crashed an Andy Warhol exhibit at the AGO, and she ran through the hallways naked and so this is integrated in the piece and also I'm very glad that the AGO decided not to press charges, but uh, last week, of course, there was an invasion. Uh, the headline was "Bloody Oops, Bloody Intruders." so that was on this year's uh, uh, Andy Warhol. So I believe that we had the best collective action to Uh, uh, go beyond Andy Warhol and take up Valerie Solanas's bent. But I would say to take it further, go back to your roots, remember the needle exchange, and join people in the street because it's really a revolution or revolutions that are going to be over to, to overturn this. We've heard from Bill Clinton at this convention. Wasn't that the same person that bombed the biggest, one of the biggest pharmaceutical plants in Africa? Right? Wasn't it? I think so. So if we know these facts and bring these together, and say that the genocide against people with AIDS is overlapping substantially with the genocide against the entire African diaspora, the genocide against any country that's been imperially invaded. What I heard during Wednesday was my memory of hearing the tiny misrepresentations of the bombing of Beirut and Gaza and the West Bank. And I'm sure I'm not alone. So, life sucks during wartime, it's always sucked during the war against people with AIDS, and now it sucks that the war against people with AIDS is also the same war against so many people. So, what is going on in the world where there are liberation struggles, and what are those struggles? And how complicated are they, and how conceptual are they, and how many artists are involved, and where? Those are open questions, there's infinite answers, but I really hope that we actually
12: continue to engage on that level. Uh, My name is Ben. I'm not really involved in the politics, but I'm fairly involved with art, and I just wanted to say something about what I saw or felt was happening artistically in the the bits of red's activity at the AGO that I've paid attention to. The thing that I was struck by when I came in on Monday, which was sort of at a upswell of the activity, was that I heard music, and for me that was very gripping and I went into the installation and what I heard was critique and the the clipping back of voices and I assumed that the critique, you know, in a large part was really directed at the voice of the activists themselves. And, you know, one of the things, the concept that uh, Robert introduced uh, a few minutes ago, the conundrum of reflection, and you know, where Ultra Red is working, you know, reflection has very different effects sonically or visually or linguistically. It means completely different things, and whether in this sort of aesthetic realm where reflection is, you know, so resonant, is this a kind of you know in language uh, a way of sort of you know finding a grounding or making sense of a kind of experience and time and in terms of uh vision you know the opportunity that a kind of illusion offers to to see something that's impossible to see when you're standing in the midst of it and with sound you know of course reflection comes back on itself and it's it has a almost a kind of a negating effect, and I think that you know, it's very exciting to see these different activities being pulled together in this you know, performance and this sort of ongoing practice of ultra-red.
2: Real quick, Robert. One last thing. I heard you say you're not an artist. I heard you say you're not an artist. You are an artist. You are an artist. I am an artist. As individuals living and testifying for this disease on a daily ongoing living basis we are our own art exhibits
1: i think that's a great way to end <laughs> all right thank you very much everyone for coming here and participating in this
0: and I just do have to say one final thing that as we head to many of you can see we're under construction as we had to 2008 many of us here are thinking about what is the art gallery what is the relevance of it and I think it's very important for us to continue to have events like this and to have artists like yourselves coming and by the way may I say red that Grace Jones was actually invited and welcomed Yes, and she actually asked us if she, we could provide a fan strong enough to blow her clothes off. And we were game enough to provide it, so <laughs> don't demonize the institution. We actually would like to think that, that our walls are going to become more permeable, and, and the street and what's in here, there's not such a divide. It's actually a continuum. So thank you very much.